Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussions. I am Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode eight, our ninth episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Marilyn Ritchie, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stauffer. And today we have a guest host, uh, Dr. Jeff Morris, who will join us for the next few segments. Marilyn, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, it certainly has been a weird time these last, I don't know, several weeks. Uh, one of the things I've spent a lot of time doing kind of on my own, as well as with my family and with my lab, is talking about the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that is very front and center, and I think on many of our minds lately. Um, this is a movement that I've been aware of for a long time, but probably uh, like many of us did not pay enough attention to it. And I think that's part of why it has become so front and center lately. Um, so what I've been trying to do is uh, educate myself, you know, as a prof professor and an educator, I feel like it's really important that I become more educated on being anti-racist and what that means. That's actually a, a word that wasn't really in my vocabulary, you know, six weeks ago. I've been reading some books, listening to podcasts, watching some documentaries. Um, I created a Slack channel for my lab group to share with one another the different educational resources that we're finding. Um, I'm finding that it's um, remarkable how much material is out there once you spend the time and look for it. And it's like a lot of things, once you kind of get into one um, podcast, they interview people that bring you to another and another. And so I've also started following more people of color on social media. I feel like I've had more conversations about racism with my children and my husband and my friends than like in the last two weeks than I ever have before. Um, it's something that's been a topic of faculty meetings and lab group meetings. I think it's been really life-changing. I don't want to say it's been great because it's been pretty painful and pretty hard, uh, a harsh reality kind of in the face. Lots of things that I've been saying wrong and doing wrong for a long time, but I'm learning a lot and I feel like I'm every day starting to do a bit better and I plan to continue this over the next, um, you know, forever. So that's really taken up a lot of my free time when I'm not doing work and even some of my work time. We dedicated a lab meeting to this. We dedicated a faculty meeting to this topic. Um, I've been participating in some um, webinars and things like that. So that's been been really important and at the forefront the last few weeks. Um, 
Another thing is trying to navigate the reopening. So the uh, county that we live in and the county that we work in are kind of over this last period of time have gone into the yellow phase or phase two and later this week going into phase three or the green phase. That is just a weird thing to live through. And we'll talk more about that with Jeff Morris later on as we get through the discussion topic. It's just so strange trying to figure out what you should and shouldn't do. And as a scientist, I'm sure Jason and Jeff, you're experiencing the same thing. I have so many non-scientist friends who ask me, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? And I feel like, you know, we're doing the best we can, but on a lot of these things, we're flying blind. This is not something any of us have lived through before. So that's been also taking up a lot of time, you know, trying to decide, decide when will the lab go back and how long will we be home? Um, and then working on a lot of grants. I've had so many grants go in over this last month. Um, and for those young folks or even the, the more senior folks, uh, I had another grant not discussed this week while I'm writing another one. I'm sharing this with you so that you know that it happens to all of us. You have to stomp your feet, get mad, have a glass of wine, and then get back to your grant and write the new grant. That's what we have to do. It's part of the process. So, uh, so that's what we've been doing. I'm trying to pretend it's summer or at least make it feel like it's summer. It's the strangest summer I think I've ever lived through, but, uh, but one day at a time. Jason, how about you? What have you been up to? So like you, Marilyn, I've, I've been very much focused on the Black Lives uh, Matter movement and educating myself, uh, talking with my lab, talking with my department, talking with other colleagues um, about, about the issues and what we can do about them. And I, I've heard a lot of good ideas, um, but I would say a lot of the ideas are small things like um, we need to make an effort to invite more underrepresented minorities uh, to our seminar series and things like that, which are all important and we definitely should do those things. But I think, you know, what the Black Lives Matter movement is really looking for is major changes, um, systemic changes in our, in, and I'm speaking about academia here, and we have a lot of work to do um, uh, to make those big changes. And um, uh, a university leader asked me the other day about what I thought we could do. And I remembered an incident um, early, a few years ago, uh, early in my time at Penn, where I had identified a African-American scientist that I wanted to recruit uh, from um, a historically black university. And I knew this person, had worked with this person. I knew they were awesome. I knew they would fit in well at Penn and, and be very successful. And, um, and got, got this person's CV and circulated it to some of my colleagues. And the, and the feedback I got was that the CV was not strong enough, that the publication record was not strong enough to get through the pen promotion, appointment promotion and tenure process. And uh, I was very disappointed because I knew this was a good person and somebody that would fit in really well at Penn and do well. And and I, you know, I, and I agreed, I, you know, and thinking about it, I thought, you know, there's no way this person's going to get through, you know, what is a very rigorous process for appointments and promotions. And uh, that was very discouraging. And so what I told this university leader is, look, we need to revamp our, our process so that we can 
not just use as criteria the number of publications on a CV, but but really think deeply about, you know, can we come up with criteria that recognize the potential of somebody from a disadvantaged background who might not have had access to the same kind of resources that um, an assistant professor starting at Penn might have access to, right? So, so uh, this is something I'm very committed to, and I think something I'm going to push pretty hard at Penn and see if I can get some others to join me is how can we how can we change our process to recognize potential and not just numbers on a CV? Um, okay, so um, there's a lot to say about that, and and I think um, on our podcast, Marilyn, we should. Uh, revisit this as often as we possibly can and, and talk about the progress we're making on these fronts. Um, scientifically, um, I have an exciting project that is coming to the end. Um, and this is a project I've been working on for a couple years to develop better machine learning benchmark data. And uh, for those of you that work in the machine learning space know this, that there just are not good data sets for benchmarking, evaluating, comparing machine learning algorithms. There are a bunch of real data sets out there that have problems. Many of them are small. Uh, many of them have very simple patterns that don't really challenge machine learning algorithms. Many of them have been studied thousands and thousands of times. So there's kind of a multiple testing problem that goes with them. Um, and, and also, because a lot of people use real data sets for benchmarking, uh, you don't know what the right answer is, right, with real data. So, um, so I've been interested in how can we develop better benchmarks? And we developed an AI algorithm for developing mathematical functions that generate simulated data that have certain properties. Uh, and in this particular case, we're asking the AI to come up with uh, functions and data where different machine learning algorithms have different performances. And we have created a set of 50 benchmark data sets with the generative functions to go with them that we're pretty excited about. And, and we're going to release this in about a month, probably by the end of July, along with a paper on archive and submit a paper for publication. Anyway, that's, that's what I've been thinking a lot about uh, the last couple of weeks scientifically. And I'm really excited to see it coming together. And I think it's going to make uh, a big, have a big impact on the machine learning community. Um, I've also been just work busy, busy, busy with grants. I'm not going to get into the details, but um, it's getting pretty old, to be honest. But like you, Marilyn, I've just been scrambling to write as many grants as possible. And the last thing I'll mention is I'm going to be on vacation next week. Uh, this was a scheduled vacation. Um, of course, it's a staycation. I'm going to stay at home, quarantined uh, as usual, but um, I have cleared my calendar and have one only one important meeting that I'm going to take next week, and I'm going to try to take the whole week off. I'll probably work on grants a little bit, but I'm not going to do any meetings, and I'm going to carve out some time to have some fun. All right, uh, uh, next um, is Jeff Morris. Uh, welcome, Jeff, and thank you for joining our podcast. And why don't you just uh, say a few words about who you are and, um, and then tell us a little bit about what you've been up to the last few weeks. Sure, yeah, thank you guys uh, for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited, yeah, for this, this opportunity. So, yeah, so um, I moved uh, to University of Pennsylvania last fall um, to, uh, to be, become director of division of biostatistics here after almost 20 years at MD Anderson. Um, and uh, so it's been 
an exciting year and I'm really enjoying the rich research environment at Penn and, and getting plugged in. Um, and so, so looking at what I've been doing sort of the last few weeks over um, while we've been staying at home during the COVID crisis, one thing I've done is trying to get caught up on getting a bunch of papers out that I've been working on for long periods of time at MD Anderson and haven't gotten to work on much during my transition. So it's been pretty exciting getting a, a paper out on a colon cancer subtype classifier um, uh, and getting out um, a paper on what we call methylation EQTLs, trying to find for, uh, for specific genes and cancer types um, locations in the genome where the methylation seems to be predictive of expression. Um, and then also um, some work on, uh, on blood signatures for liver cancer that, um, that we've been working on. So it's kind of nice to get, to get those papers um, completed and out the door. Um, and that's been uh, pretty exciting and found out exciting news this week that my um, grant related to the integrative genomics work and network modeling that I was working on got a, a fundable score for my R01. So that's exciting. Um, so now I can begin sort of mapping out a plan on how to um, build on that work that I started at MD Anderson and, and connect it with uh, some of the research problems uh, going on at Penn. So, um, so I've had, so it's kind of been, you know, nice during the time working from home, getting to get those things sort of wrapped up and completed. Um, but then um, also I've, I've kind of been spending more time with my COVID data science blog and um, spending a little more time digging into some of the issues that I see and and um, I've had kind of an uptick in media discussions uh, that have arisen from that work, um, you know, and really just trying to come to grips with what's been going on in the pandemic. And in the last uh, several weeks, we've seen um, some apparent surges starting in some states around the country. So I've been trying to dig into that information and figure out what we think might be going on. Um, so yeah, so work-wise, those are you know some of the things I've been doing lately, and but it's been you know nice having family time, and I think since as we moved into the yellow zone the last few weeks, um, I've been able to see other family a little more. Because one of my one of the nice things about moving back uh, to the area here is um, I grew up in this area. My mom lives 40 minutes away. My sister lives 45 minutes away, but. Uh, during the pandemic, I haven't really been able to see them because of the required social distancing. So now in the yellow zone, we've been able to get together a few times and it's been uh, just really nice getting to see them and, and be a little more connected. Well, congratulations on your grant, Jeff. And uh, we will talk to you about your blog in just a few minutes. My name is Dr. William Hirsch. I am Professor and Chair of the Department of Medical Informatics and Clinical Epidemiology in the School of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. My website is www.billhersh.info. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn.
before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us at bmipodcast.org. You can send feedback by email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our handle is at BMIR podcast and also on Facebook. Be sure to leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is analyzing and interpreting COVID-19 testing and hospital surveillance data. We have a special guest today to introduce this topic. Uh, As you heard earlier, Dr. Jeff Morris is director of the Division of Biostatistics here at Penn Medicine and recently launched a COVID-19 data science blog, which has received a lot of media attention. Jeff, why don't you uh, tell us um, about your blog and how it got started? Yeah, so so the blog really started by some Facebook posts that I was just throwing up there, just trying to provide a solid balanced perspective and good information to my many Facebook friends in the early days of the pandemic. Um, uh, there was a lot of information flowing around um, and not all of it was reliable. So, So I tried to um, sort of use my my perspective as a quantitative scientist to kind of evaluate the information going around and figure out what information seemed most reliable and and um, to try and explain it clearly uh, to my friends and family members to give them good guidance in in how to take this uh, pandemic seriously because I saw a number of people that um, didn't seem to understand how serious this pandemic was and what steps they needed to take to be safe. And so, um, so over time, I, I just sort of spent a little bit of time and threw up Facebook posts. And one thing that I noticed was people were um, giving me feedback that I was um, giving posts that was one of the few sources of information that they trust on the virus. And once I heard this information from both very liberal as well as very conservative Facebook friends, then I realized that I was kind of striking the balance that I was intending to strike. Um, and, and part of something that I've learned is kind of in our, our modern um, information-driven society, there's, there's a lot of information out there flowing around like crazy. Um, but as the information comes in, there's almost always you know, some sort of bias or some sort of narrative that it's linked to because we're all, we're all subjective and and the message that we give is going to be colored by, by our perspectives. And so that can make it difficult for people to sift through the information and, and figure out what is true. And so that's been part of the theme of, of what I tried on Facebook and what I've tried in the blog is to try and evaluate different perspectives and ideas and data that are coming in and um, just try and ask the question of what is the data telling us and try and be aware of any subjective perspectives that could be coloring it and try and pull that aside while I'm trying to understand what's going on and and try and uh, find a balanced commentary. Um, so, so I sort of started by doing that. And then over time, I thought that Facebook's not a very good medium um, to make a larger impact because my Facebook friend group is only so large and stuff scrolls off the screen. 
And for my own benefit, I was wanting to dig deeper into a lot of the issues to understand what was going on, kind of like we're all doing. You know, with a novel virus, we started off knowing almost nothing. And all this information is coming in. And I kind of think about it like a centrifuge, trying to, all this information's floating around, but can I identify some key important bits of information, grab them and start synthesizing together the big picture of what I think is going on? Again, kind of using the principles of how we do data analysis and how we do data science. You know, recognizing that information many times does, comes in has to be interpreted contextually. There can be some sources of biases, like with observational medical data. Um, we can't interpret that the same as a clinical trial, but it doesn't mean the information is not useful. We just have to recognize what are the potential biases and adjust for those. So kind of trying to follow that process in evaluating the information and trying to filter out the biases and then synthesizing the bits of information together to try and understand the big picture better. And that's something that I think in our modern society is a little bit of a lost skill. Um, we're all good at going on our phones, going on Google, getting information. But I think the ability to kind of link information together is something that we do as data scientists that other people might not do as much. So I've tried to do that. And then also in terms of figuring out what we think we know, communicating appropriately the amount of uncertainty about the things that we're learning. What are the things that based on the data, we can know these things for sure and they're probably not gonna change. What are the things that are our current understanding but very subject to change? So anyways, that's, that's sort of the big picture, but that's, that's the approach I've tried to take um, as, the, you know, as the crisis has unfolded to try and understand what's going on in terms of, in terms of the, the growth of cases, in terms of the risk for severe disease, in terms of the treatments, um, in terms of expecting, you know, thinking of what we can expect over time. And so, so at some point then I decided to start this blog just to give it a little more of a, a permanent home for, for these articles and then link them to various social media pages. And so, so I've been doing that for about a month and a half now. And, and I think it has given me the ability to get some of these messages that I see um, coming clear in the data based on my analyses to get that message out there a little bit. And one thing I've found is that, um, like I think a lot of things in life, it's about finding, finding a middle ground and a balanced perspective. And with this crisis, I think the two extremes are basically deniers and alarmists. And I think both are sort of dangerous to our ability to deal with this crisis. Because obviously, people that deny it's a problem are going to continue to engage in um, behaviors that are going to put us at risk and, and create surges like some of the ones we're seeing right now in certain states. But on the other side, I think there's also a danger where alarmists seem to be treating this virus like global thermonuclear war or something, that we're in our bomb shelters and the war has happened and we can't emerge until it's safe. And so there's some fear that once we step outside of our homes, we're going to get radiation sickness and die and realizing that the virus isn't that. And so finding that middle ground to, find, to figure out what is really true about the virus, what are the healthy risks, but not getting caught up in irrational fears and finding that middle ground. And I think that's really an essential thing for us to, to wrap our minds around as a society if we're gonna be able to, um, to come up with sustainable strategies 
for dealing with it. So Jeff, I, I watch the news a lot and um, I find myself very frustrated with uh, the kinds of information that a lot of the national news networks are putting out there. And you know they often have uh, clinicians, infectious disease experts, uh, public health experts on who who do who do give good advice. But in terms of actually understanding the data, mm -hmm. uh, I, I find uh, the national news to be um, uh, you know very inadequate. And I was wondering if you had um, you know anything to tell our listeners about the shortcomings of how news networks uh, portray the information and what they're missing. What are they missing? What are they, no. um, you know, what, you know, for example, I mean, it'd be great if they'd have people like you, biostatisticians, data scientists, informaticians on these shows as well to talk about the problems with the data or uh, mm -hmm. the complexities of the data or how to interpret the data in a, in a, in a better way. I, I was wondering if you have, um, yeah. you know, any thoughts about that? No, I do. I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And, and one, one thing I start with is it really in the last three weeks, I've ended up doing a lot of um, a lot of media interviews for um, for newspapers, for television and for a national blog. And um, and so I had never really done that much before. So I'm kind of going through the learning curve, but kind of looking at it with fresh eyes. And I see a little bit of what you see. Um, but. I have, I think, a little more nuanced perspective on it. Like one thing I think is the problem is some of the problem is our quantitative science community, um, statisticians and other data scientists that we're not prominent enough and we're not showing people um, in the broader community what we can bring to the table in terms of our analytical skills. And so I see that as one problem. I think they're not aware of us. And so that's one thing that I, I've learned and I think we need to do better sort of as a field, that our perspective is absolutely essential to understand things in the modern world. And I don't think we put ourselves in a position to have a seat at the table or to influence things like the media enough. So that's, that's one perspective. But the other thing is in my media interviews, I notice sort of a contrast between the interview and sometimes the article or the news story that comes out. Like as I'm talking with the reporter, I sense a real openness to understanding what's going on, um, a curiosity. And sometimes I've taken advantage of that opportunity to try and give them a little overview of, of sort of what I see about how to understand the data, hoping to sort of get them to be able to sort of interpret it more carefully themselves. And one thing I'm aware of is some of the narratives that they're tied into. And I want them to realize, I want them to get outside of that a little and to look a little more objectively. And what I found by and large is almost every reporter that I've talked to seems open to that. And many times the articles or the news reports contain sort of the balanced perspective that I'm trying to convey. But usually the title of the article or the title of the news story or the way the lead in is, is usually much more extreme. Many times it's more alarmist. And so I've gotten a little upset at how it's been portrayed. But I, I, I think of that as part of a broader issue in our modern society. And it's that we, we tend to prefer fitting things into narratives instead of looking at information at its base and trying to be open to where it leads. And, um, you know, and sort of, 
I don't want to get too far into this philosophical point, but I think it's really a fundamental, um, a fundamental thing in our society is we're overwhelmed with information and people have difficulty processing it. So what they tend to do is look at different narratives that are being put together out there that are all based on some information, but usually come from one specific perspective. And they figure out which narrative they believe the most. And then people don't have time to evaluate for themselves, so they sort of join that team and join that narrative. And the problem with narrative-based thinking is when you start with the narrative, you tend to cherry pick data, you tend to collect the type of data that feeds in to your narrative, um, and you tend to downplay information based on other narratives. And I see this going on on many issues. And so with the COVID crisis, I kind of saw that going on with the deniers and the alarmists. And like I said, I think both are wrong. And what happens is because we fall into this very narrative-driven sort of divisive thinking where we dichotomize and want to join one group or the other, um, it feeds itself because the deniers look at, well, the alarmists look at the deniers that are causing these surges and say, see, these deniers are done. See, this is really bad. We need to treat this more carefully. But then some of them are going way too far and maybe implying we need to keep lockdowns in place for super extensive periods of time and blaming lifting of lockdowns for all the problems, not realizing that we can't lock down for six months or a year. We don't really have a choice. But they seem to sort of push that viewpoint and have this more extreme alarmist viewpoint. And then the deniers look at them and say, see, what they're proposing isn't realistic. So I'm in the right place as a denier. And I think we fall into these ruts. And part of it is because we're overwhelmed by information in our modern society. But that's where I think we can play a role as data scientists of sort of trying to be more objective arbiters of what the data says. And I don't want to say arbiters of truth because that's too lofty and makes us seem in a special position. But I think we're in a unique position because of the way we think to unpack these narratives and pull the information and then pull the information from other narratives and get other information and figure out what the data tells us. And if we can find data that is a common ground, then maybe even the two sides can agree on some points and start working together. So I think that's a general principle at work here. Hey, Jeff, that makes so much sense. And I think it explains why I feel like I have been a ping pong ball for the last several weeks, because as things are opening, I go from alarmist. I I wouldn't say I ever get to the point of denier, but I think I go between alarmist and middle ground where, you know, one day I am completely comfortable doing something. And then the next day I'm like, no, 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 it's not safe. We can't do that. And I think I'm driving my children crazy. But what I wanted to ask is, um, in terms of the data for the state of Pennsylvania, which is only going to be applicable to to certain people listening to the podcast, but I think it is um, perhaps informative because I've seen some news that I, I guess, one question, is it accurate? But two, why would it be that Pennsylvania is one of the few states that does not see that uptick, despite the fact that we've had a lot of counties opening for for many weeks. And so one would have expected, especially with all of the Black Lives Matters protests in Pittsburgh and Harrisburg yeah. and Philadelphia, that we would have seen an uptick. So are, are those data accurate? And what are we doing right, if they are? Yeah, so I, I think the data is accurate. And I think Pennsylvania is, is walking the line, you know, the best, because as we've opened up, people have followed the basic precautions in general, people are wearing masks, we have a mask, order throughout the state. 
And it turns out from what I've learned, looking at the data, looking at studies, wearing masks is a huge deal in terms of slowing the spread of this virus. If everybody did that, that might almost be enough to keep it from surging, maybe. But then also social distancing. And I notice businesses, you know, they've put up plexiglass, they've given guidelines, and people are going along with it. And that's one thing, one of the narratives that I've sort of fought, I find myself fighting alarmist and denial um, narratives. And a couple of weeks ago, a lot of my media stuff, I was fighting this narrative that I would characterize as alarmist that said, oh, now that things opened, everything is surging. And I've gone through and looked state by state, and a lot of places opened in April and have not surged. They've, some of them have continued to come down. Some of them have had this steady state, but they haven't really gone up. A few have gone up, but proportional to testing, but not in an alarming way. And then there's a handful of places that have really surged. And even of the places that have surged, a couple of them did not surge immediately upon opening. They surged later. Like Florida was fine for a month. Starting June 1st or 2nd, it is completely taken off. Um, where Arizona, pretty much as soon as they open, they seem to surge. So, so I feel like the narrative that, oh, when you open up, a surge is inevitable, that's an alarmist narrative that I believe is not largely true. And I think whether a surge happens or not depends on how the people behave. And one thing I've heard in the places where there's a surge from, from knowing people there is that there's a lot of deniers there to some degree. And there's not very good um, compliance with the recommendations. Mask wearing is almost nil in these places. And once they opened up the bars and restaurants, a lot of people just wanted to pack in and climb on top of each other because people didn't believe it was real. So I think that contributes to the uptick. So, so two other, I think, big points there are indoor versus outdoor is also a really, really big deal. That's one thing I've learned just and I think the evidence is really strong on this. Like I saw a study in Japan where they quantified the viral spread being 20 times more efficient indoors than outdoors. And to me, the, the Black Lives Matter um, protests that happened all around the country, as they were going on, I was extremely nervous because those were huge crowds. They were packed in, in urban areas that are already dense, that already have a lot of COVID going around. And I was afraid we were going to see a surge coming from this. But now they've been going on several weeks. I don't see any evidence of it. And, and even in Minneapolis, they, they took 3,000 people, you know, that were at an early protest and they tested them 1.4% positive, which is lower than what the population testing rate is. So, so I think outdoors is a different game. It doesn't mean you can completely um, just ignore recommendations outside. But what I think it means is we, we can figure out the first order things that we can do to protect ourselves. And I think indoors, we want to avoid big crowds and closed areas and wear masks. And I think if we do those, those primary things, the other stuff is sort of all, all secondary to that. Um, so, so coming back then to Pennsylvania again, um, it's been amazing to me that Pennsylvania has been steadily coming down for a long time. I think we're down 80% in the daily cases from what the surge is. Now I hear there's a couple counties that might be experiencing some small upticks, but I think by and large, we're kind of handling it well. And so another big point that I've sort of realized from looking at all this, that I don't see a lot of people talking about, has to do with timelines. And this, this is what really drives me in pushing for a middling strategy that um, once this virus spread through the whole community and everywhere, we're not gonna stamp it out. 
it's going to be around us. We're going to have to live with this for a long time. Pretty much until there's a vaccine that's effective and disseminated, we're going to have this virus different places going around society. And so we're going to have to deal with it. So I think we have to have a long game perspective with this. And that's where there has to be a balance of figuring out um, how to be safe and prevent it from spiking and surging, but at the same time, do it in a way that is sustainable, that allow people to live their lives to the highest degree possible. So Jeff, um, so that was awesome. Thank you so much for your insights. Um, I was wondering if you could highlight an example from your blog, maybe where uh, you've uh, looked at some data in a biostatistical way or a data science way that you could share with our listeners, you know, what are, or an example insight, uh, I know you've already given a couple, but maybe, maybe an example where you've applied your data science thinking or data science skills to revealing something in, in the, the national surveillance data or statewide surveillance data that, that was an insight or something different, uh, than, than that others missed. Um, yeah, so, so one thing, yeah, one thing I could mention is just, going back and doing a state-by-state -state analysis of what has happened since opening um, and going there and realizing that um, we need to look at cases, we need to look at testing, and we also need to look at hospitalization and mortality, that each bit of information, um, each of those measures contains a different bit of information. And either one by itself is insufficient to describe what is going on and to distinguish whether there is a surge or not. So recognizing each type of data, what its limitations are, what its timing is, how reliable and how much measurement error it has, and then how and what it tells you. And then based on that, piecing together state by state, integrating that data and synthesizing it and saying, what can we say about what's going on in this state? And so an example, you know, for where that makes a difference, this is pretty simple, is there was a lot of talk about California experiencing a surge and people have included California in that group. And if you look at the data, the incidence data has been steadily climbing linearly, really since early April. But then if you look at the testing, the testing has climbed at exactly the same rate. The testing positivity rate has stayed constant and things haven't surged. And the hospitals and the death rates have not surged. So California, I wouldn't say they're, they're, they're not in as good a shape as us here in Pennsylvania, where we're actually decreasing, but they're kind of in this steady state, which is a different situation than Arizona and Texas, where um, their increase is alarming and it's accelerating and it's accompanied by increase of hospitalizations. And so all of these pieces together show you evidence for a real surge, which means a kind of a growth in infections that is getting out of control and likely leading to something with severe consequences rather than sort of a steady state that is perhaps manageable. So uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the CDC and I think probably a good amount of it is justified, but you can't help but wonder, you know, why is the CDC not doing this kind of analysis that you're doing and providing that to the public and communicating it clearly and feeding it to the news agencies so that they can present a clearer picture about what is actually going on across the country. I, you know, it's, it seems like a yeah. systemic failure in our government that they're not taking a data science approach to really understanding the data and getting that information out there. No, I, I agree. Um, 
yeah, I wish there was a better response. And I think the CDC has done a, a decent job of putting out guidelines, but they've been very quiet. And so, you know, I think the whole federal approach to this has not been, you know, what, what I would have liked, obviously, as an understatement. You know, it would be nice if there was more coordination. And I think even more so, it would be nice if there was good communication and messaging to kind of help people understand um, the seriousness and what are the key steps, but providing also some positive reassurance that we can handle this. We don't have any of that going on at all. But, but I do feel like, you know, CDC is one example, but um, there's a lot of other organizations and groups that could be doing this more. Um, and I don't see a lot of big concerted efforts. I see sort of individual academic efforts of people to try and um, characterize the data and, and interpret it. But I don't see, you know, a systematic, um, just a systematic effort from the government to do that. Yeah, you know, um, for the for the listeners who are not in academia, uh, may not appreciate this, but um, we see it every day that that our faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, and I know this is true at many other universities and academic medical centers across the country, all of us have dropped many of the things we were doing to focus on COVID. Okay. Uh, Marilyn has, I have, and Jeff, you've you've tackled it. Yeah whole hog. And I think it's really impressive what you've done and the insights you've been able to glean. But academia has really stepped up and, and taken this seriously. And every, you know, this is a team effort. We're all in this and trying to understand this and chip in and help in any way we can. It's been a very impressive effort from academia. Uh, at, while our federal government has really dropped the ball over and over and over again on this. No, I agree. And, and, and actually, I see, yeah, I see the scientific community that you know, really um, moving in incredible ways. And just even when you look at the speed at which tests have been developed, antibody tests have been developed, studies have been started, lots of clinical trials, and science is moving very fast. The development of vaccines, the testing of vaccines, and of course it comes sort of with its hazards, and it's like what I call wartime science. But, but I see it as an exciting time because I feel like the whole world has kind of stopped and we all have a common enemy. And, and I think there is a lot of efforts where everybody is trying to figure things out all at once. And, you know, it's in all of our best interest. And one thing that I'm kind of sad about is that, you know, the, just the political division that we sort of live in in our society has sort of permeated and I think caused us to miss out on an opportunity to unite in a bigger way across the country and the world, because everybody really wants the same thing. Nobody wants the virus to spread out of control and kill people, conservatives or liberals. Nobody wants businesses to go under and people to be unemployed and hurts the economy. There's no, there's no real agenda where people want something different. We all want the same thing. So it's kind of sad to me that people accentuate the the division and the divisive points instead of focusing on our common ground and really working together and i think in spite of a lot of the political rhetoric that that gets thrown around i think by and large a lot of elements of society are working together and i think 
it's it's a great example for what we can do because I don't think the government is best equipped to to come to knowledge of all of this. Maybe the scientists are in better way ways equipped. It would be great to be coordinated more with the government, but I think finding ways for the different elements of society that have certain skill sets and perspectives to do what they do well and to be able to pull it all together. I think that's a, a great model for operating and, and doing things. And I think, you know, to a large degree that's going on. And so another kind of perspective I think we can think about with this is a, a lot of the things that are going on in terms of processing information, avoiding getting trapped in the rut of a narrative, um, trying to do studies that are rigorous, but yet getting quick answers and putting them to practice earlier, even when we have uncertainty, all of those things um, aren't unique to the COVID crisis, but all of it is happening all at once in a microcosm. So I think as we deal with this crisis, hopefully we can learn a lot of things that we can take out of it and apply to some of the other more long-term problems that we're dealing with over decades or even centuries. But to apply these same strategies that we learn um, more broadly. Jeff, this has been really, really great. And um, is there any any last words you want to tell the listeners about your blog? Anything else you want them to know? Um, yeah, not too much. Yeah, I mean, I encourage you to yeah to check it out. I'm I'm trying to find time to post stuff up. I have kind of a list of about ten posts I want to write that I'm trying to find time to do. But um, you know, and I'm always interested in feedback as well. Um, so yes, I encourage you yeah, to check it out and, and, you know, just also encourage everybody to try and, you know, to try and find, um, take a long-term perspective to this crisis and, and to try and, um, to, you know, just, just try and not get caught in some of these ruts and some of these narratives that are going on, on. see if you can catch yourself in it. And, and, you know, just try and find a balanced perspective. And I think if we all do that, we're going to be on the same page more and we can move forward more quickly in finding the best solutions and the best strategies. And hopefully everybody has access to a smart data scientist like Jeff in their life that can, uh, can, can help, uh, help them uh, gain the insights necessary to figure this out. Um, Jeff, you want to say the uh, address of your blog and we'll, we'll include uh, the web address in the show notes as well. Sure. It's, uh, it's covid-datascience.com. Well, great. Well, Jeff, it's, um, it's really fabulous uh, to have you as a colleague at Penn. We're so happy you came and uh, it's been a real pleasure working with you. And um, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Yeah, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to do all the analyses you've done. I mean, as someone who's also working on COVID, but I'm more so in the recruiting patients into research and trying to pull EHR data together, I haven't had much time to look at the data. And I so appreciate the analyses that you've done. And I go to you as a source rather than the news to figure out kind of how to make decisions for myself and for my family. So thanks for taking the time to do the analyses, but also to post about it and share and educate the rest of us. And thanks for coming on today. Thank you. And thank you guys. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Marilyn will get us started with the first item. Thanks, Jason. 
Carl Zimmer had a nice piece in the New York Times on June 1st on how to read coronavirus studies in scientific journals. His advice applies to any scientific paper and is geared to the lay public that are reading scientific papers for the first time. He talks about how scientific papers can be hard to read because scientists aren't really taught how to write. We often have to write things in order to satisfy reviewers. And we're required often by the journal to chop up the paper into pieces. And so sometimes some of the key details are moved to the supplement and particularly a lay audience is unlikely to dig in and read a supplement. Further, the rate of new papers on coronavirus is staggering. It is now in the tens of thousands. It is impossible for any one person to read them all. So he recommends reading a scientific paper the way that a scientist does. Number one, is it based on a few patients or thousands of patients? Is this a good sample size? Number two, is it mixing up correlation and causation? And number three, do the authors actually present the evidence to support their conclusions? He recommends using Twitter to see what the discussion is on a paper. I have found that to be super helpful as well, to just see what other leaders in the field are saying about the paper. We will have a link to the New York Times article in the show notes. Thanks, Marilyn. Yeah, I really enjoyed that piece, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of Carl Zimmer's. He's a, he's a great science writer. Okay, next up, um, there was an interesting piece in Science from May 27th, and the title was, Eye-Catching Advances in Some AI Fields Are Not Real. And the author reviews some systematic evaluations and comparisons of machine learning and AI algorithms in the literature. For example, they mention a paper by Dr. et al. published in the Proceedings of the 13th ACM Conference on Recommender Systems in 2019. And the authors of this conference paper compared 18 algorithms presented at top computer science conferences from the past few years and found that they could only reproduce the results of seven of them, and six out of the seven could be easily beaten by much simpler algorithms. And uh, the, uh, the piece in science cites multiple other studies showing uh, similar kinds of results in other domains. So I really like this piece because I've been critical of some deep learning papers for the analysis of EHR data, for example, because it was not clear whether a simpler approach like logistic regression work, would work just as well. And I think this is a common failure of machine learning and, and deep learning more specifically is not comparing the results to simpler methods. So I think it's up to us as reviewers when we are reviewing a machine learning or AI paper to request that the authors compare the performance of their method to simpler methods as a baseline uh, so that they can be sure that their method is actually performing better and doing something that they claim it's doing. To add to that, I have seen this happen where we will do such a thing and a reviewer will say, why would you do such a simple analysis? It's obvious that this other method would work better than logistic regression. And I do it for that exact reason that you just said. I think it is incumbent upon us to show baseline, simple logistic regression. Does this actually do better or not? And I think it's really important either way. If it doesn't or if it does, that's important and informative. So as reviewers, don't give authors a hard time whenever they choose to do the simple model to show you and demonstrate that their method actually performs better. Yeah, I actually read a deep learning paper 
recently that did logistic regression, but they buried the logistic regression results in a supplement so that you couldn't see that. And, and it didn't highlight that upfront that, and actually statistically, there was no difference in performance between the machine learning and the logistic regression results. So this is something we as a community need to uh, to do a better job on. Back to Carl's point. They make us bury yes. important things in the supplement. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, next up, um, I ran across a nice blog post by Charles Parker from March 20, 20th on the misuse of machine learning benchmark data for evaluating machine learning methods. Uh, in fact, he very strongly says that most benchmarks are, uh, and these are his words, catastrophically and fundamentally flawed. And he says, and I quote, please, for the love of statistics, do not trust any machine learning benchmark that... And he lists seven things uh, that uh, they they uh, don't do that that if they don't do we shouldn't trust. Uh, so number one was uh, do not uh, that the paper does not split training and testing data to of course evaluate the generalizability. So that's that's fundamental. Uh, that uh, the paper does not use identical training and testing splits across all the methods being compared, because that would introduce a huge source of variability when you're comparing methods, uh, does not uh, do multiple training and testing splits, because that when you split a data set into training and testing components, just by chance, it could be an odd split where the training and testing are not representative of the overall data set. So you need to do that multiple times and do the same experiment and see, look at the distribution of results. Uh, uses less than five different data sets. Uh, so again, back to this benchmarking issue, um, it's often the case that uh, a machine learning paper will cherry pick uh, a couple data sets uh, to evaluate their method on. And of course, pick the ones that make their method look the best. So you need to do it on a wide variety of different data sets and really highlight the strengths and weaknesses of your method. Number five, uses less than three well-established metrics to evaluate the results. So just don't use area under the curve. Um, use some of the other metrics like F1 or area under the precision recall curve uh, to evaluate. Uh, number six, relies on only one software package to compute the metrics. Number seven does not use the same software to compute all the quality metrics for all the methods, uh, also very important. So we'll have a link to this blog post in the show notes. I think it's worth a read if you're uh, in the business of doing machine learning and in particular um, machine learning evaluation. Yeah, that one's great. In another article, Science reported on June 4th that the retraction, uh, or two papers were retracted, um, two high profile. COVID-19 papers among the thousands, these are two high profile ones that were in Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine. Both papers involved a company called Surgisphere who claimed to have aggregated COVID-19 data from nearly 100,000 patients from around the world. The Lancet paper was highly cited as it claimed that hydroxychloroquine came with higher risk of ventricular arrhythmias. A closer look at the results in these papers caused some scientists to question the authenticity of the data, which later led to their retraction. We are going to talk more about these papers in detail in our journal club later in the episode. Uh, we do have links to the papers in the show notes, as well as the NIH news. And I'll just add one more point that on June 20th, the NIH halted its clinical trial of hydroxychloroquine because it showed no benefit to patients 
but it also showed no harm. Yeah, I look forward to discussing uh, these papers with you, Marilyn. They're very, very interesting and very controversial. Um, okay, next, um, I came across a really nice set of AI and machine learning cheat sheets that were put together by two students at Stanford University. And they include cheat sheets on machine learning, deep learning, AI, and probability and statistics. So these look really useful if you're a student or just learning about AI and machine learning for the first time. And we've got a link here in the show notes to these cheat sheets. And finally, um, our last item is, and I just saw this this morning. Um, this uh, was a news piece in Nature that appeared a few days ago on June 19th. And it's on a letter that was signed by more than 1,400 mathematicians to boycott working with police departments on mathematical models and algorithms for what's called predictive policing. Uh, and of course, this comes in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the subsequent protests. Uh, and the letter was addressed to the journal uh, Notices of the American Mathematical Society, the AMS. Um, so I thought this was really use, uh, really interesting and um, kudos to the mathematicians for taking a stand on something that they obviously feel very strongly about. And uh, we have a link in the show notes to the Nature news piece, and you can read the letter uh, written by these mathematicians uh, in their Google Doc, and we have a link to that as well. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. And as mentioned earlier, you can also uh, reach us on Twitter or Facebook. So please send us your thoughts. And we did have a piece of listener feedback, uh, Elijah Connor emailed us and recommended we discuss a perspectives paper from Nature Medicine on 10 recommendations for supporting open pathogen genomic analysis in public health. So this was a very timely and important paper. So thank you, Elijah, for your recommendation. Um, I really uh, enjoyed this paper and thought I'd just quickly read the 10 tips. Um, Number one, support data hygiene and interoperability through common data models. Number two, strengthen APIs. Number three, develop guidelines for management and stewardship of genomic data. Number four, make bioinformatics pipelines fully open source and accessible. Number five, develop modular pipelines for data visualization and exploration. Number six, improve the reproducibility of bioinformatics analyses. Number seven, utilize cloud computing to improve scalability. Number eight, support new infrastructure and software development with expanded technical workforce, i.e. funding. Uh, number six, improve integration of genomic epidemiology with traditional epidemiology. And number 10, develop best practices to support open data sharing. So these are all great tips. And thank you for sharing, Elijah. A link will be included in the show notes. I am Subha Madhavan, Chief Data Scientist at the Georgetown University Medical Center. And you're listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Marilyn.
Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, we will discuss two high-profile papers that were recently retracted. The first is a paper in The Lancet by Mara et al., which was published on May 22nd. And the second, a paper by the same authors in the New England Journal of Medicine published on May 1st. And like I said, both of these papers were just within the last week or so uh, retracted. Uh, so the New England Journal of Medicine paper looked at cardiovascular disease as a risk factor for death in patients hospitalized for COVID-19. And the Lancet paper found that taking hydroxychloroquine was associated with ventricular arrhythmias in patients hospitalized for COVID-19. Now, both of these papers used observational data from electronic health records from hospitals in multiple countries around the world. In fact, the Lancet paper claimed to study nearly 100,000 patients from more than 670 hospitals from many different countries around the world. And this paper was widely cited given its finding of harmful effects of hydroxychloroquine. So this was this paper became a bit of a, um, a political discussion point because, um, of course, the president was pushing hydroxychloroquine and we were everybody was saying, wait a minute, we need to study the health effects of taking hydroxychloroquine and make sure it's safe to take and make sure it's actually effective. And, uh, and then this paper came out in the Lancet saying that it was actually harmful to patients. And that created quite an uproar and there was a lot of discussion about it. So um, anyway, so these, these papers, in addition to being retracted, were quite uh, quite high profile, and not just because of the journal they were published in, but because of the potential political implications. Okay, so these two papers have received a lot of scrutiny from the scientific community, and there were a number of red flags that ultimately resulted in both papers being retracted. So I've listed a few here. Uh, first, the data was aggregated uh, from you know these these 100,000 patients, I'm going to talk mostly about the the bigger Lancet paper, from 100,000 patients um, across many, many countries, many, many hospitals from a very, and this was all done by a very small company called Surgisphere, who, by the way, has no track record in aggregating big data like this. In fact, it used to be a medical, it started out as a medical textbook company. So all of a sudden, this company became a big data company aggregating Uh, tens of thousands of patients from around the world. And we'll talk more about why that's problematic uh, in a few minutes. Secondly, when people looked at the the results in the data, um, they were surprisingly clean and uniform and didn't really match some of the patterns that were known in these different countries. Number three, uh, there were only a few authors on the paper and no consortium authorship list was provided. So that was very odd that 670 hospitals would provide data and none of the clinicians or scientists uh, at any of those hospitals would demand authorship on this paper. It was really bizarre. Uh, Number four, um, Australia was listed as one of the contributors of data, but nobody in Australia had any idea who in their country contributed data for this study. So, And nobody raised their hand to say that they had volunteered data. So that was a red flag. 
And also race and ethnicity were listed for the European countries, and they don't routinely provide such data by a matter of uh, principle and, and practice. So uh, that raised a number of red flags. And then when the authors were questioned about this, they were unwilling to provide the data for an independent review. And of course, the authors claimed that the data were all accurate and that these countries all provided this data. So this is this ultimately led to the retraction um, of these papers. And there's a growing consensus in the scientific community that these data are likely synthetic and were completely fabricated by this company. Now, I don't personally know if that's true or not, but I can tell you that that seems to be overwhelmingly where the evidence is pointing. And the fact that the authors can't confirm any of this data, um, I think, uh, tells us everything we need to know. Yeah. As a person who works with electronic health record data quite a bit, I have to say I was struck by the speed with which these data were aggregated. Um, especially worldwide data. So when you think about electronic health record data, there are different coding practices. The way that we code and enter information is different even within the U.S. across health systems. Certainly worldwide, there's a lot of differentiation in how we put information in. The way we name medications are different, not to mention the different languages that presumably, you know, each country has their native language in the EHR, not English. And so that struck me as well. Like, how in the world did they get data from this many countries aggregated and cleaned and analyzed so quickly, especially when, you know, we're part of this national initiative in the U.S. and even all speaking English, all using pretty similar EHR data, we're spending a lot of time to get our data aggregated. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and I think it I I think this raises some important questions about peer review. You know, who peer reviewed these papers, and had Dr. Marilyn Ritchie reviewed these papers, you would have raised these questions, and I certainly would have as well. And I think any biomedical informatician or data scientist, or and a lot of clinicians as well that work with EHR data and know about the complexities would have raised these issues. So I've made a list. Um, of 10 challenges of working with the HR data. Uh, and just to give our listeners who don't routinely work with the HR data some ideas about why Marilyn and I would have uh, had a, had red flags had, had we reviewed these papers. Um, you know, sort of as a, um, a point of education uh, into why biomedical research with the HR data is so difficult and challenging and time consuming and why it's unrealistic that this small company with a few staff in such a short amount of time would have been able to pull this together. All right, so I'm gonna go through this list. Um, number one, EHR data is extremely complex. There's lots of different kinds of data uh, and that, that always makes EHR data challenging. Uh, number two, EHR data is extremely messy. Of all the kinds of data I've worked with in my career, EHR data is the messiest. And I've got a list here of some examples of where this messiness comes from. First of all, EHRs are not designed for research. So that makes it a challenge to do research with EHR data because the data was not entered and is not uh, in a format that is particularly amenable for research. There's no inherent study design. This is not a carefully designed epidemiologic study, case control, longitudinal, et cetera. This is patients coming in and out of a health system with you know, no particular rhyme or reason. 
number three, uh, inconsistent technology, the technology used to do the laboratory measures and to measure the vital signs, for example, changes quite frequently as new technology comes out. And so if you're studying patients over a particular time period, it may be that their measurements come from a wide range of different instruments, and that can add a lot of measurement error to, uh, to the data. Uh, inconsistent patient encounters. Patients come in and out of different health systems all the time. They might be seen at one health system for one reason and go to a completely different unrelated health system with a completely different EHR for another reason, and you would have no idea that that was the case. Uh, next, uh, data can be sparse. Um, uh, patients when they enter the health system, get measured for different things for different reasons. And when you're looking at a particular health outcome, uh, there's no reason why all the patients with that particular health outcome would have the same measurements, the same lab tests, um, et cetera. So data can be, there can be a lot of missing data with EHR. Uh, some key data are not captured. For example, uh, family history of disease is often not captured in electronic health records. Environmental data is not captured in electronic health records. Um, so that makes, uh, makes EHR data difficult. Uh, the electronic health record itself is very inflexible and back to the point about it not being designed for research. And so if you wanna put one of these things that's not captured in the EHR, uh, getting that change to the EHR can be extremely difficult, especially with commercial vendors. Uh, next, uh, EHR data has a complex temporal component because patients are coming in and out of the health system at different times, over some over long periods of time, some over short periods of time. Uh, the temporal component can be quite challenging. And finally, uh, not all of clinical data you might be interested in is in one particular database. Uh, uh, for example, radiology for all the images that are collected could have a completely separate database. And so you have to bring that data together and integrate it, and that can make it uh, quite quite messy. So, um, so that was point number two, that EHR data is messy. Yeah, two points in that one section that I would make in terms of the temporal component and how the data are sparse. I mean, especially thinking about something like medications like hydroxychloroquine or the different... Um, severity of COVID-19 and the different outcomes that patients are having, like atrial fibrillation or ventricular fibrillation or um, acute, acute kidney failure, some of those data, you need to intercalate multiple different sparse data sources to get there. So they may or may not have an indication that they have that disorder, but then they have all the labs that would indicate that they do. They're on the medication that would indicate that they do, but they were never diagnosed, or at least the diagnosis isn't in the chart. And so a lot of that cleaning, because it's so messy, is putting together their diagnoses with those labs and with those meds to figure it out. And the temporal component, especially with something like COVID, is so important. You can't say that somebody with myocardial infarction in their chart had a heart attack because of COVID. You have to look and see when did they have the heart attack? When did they go on COVID? And so that was another piece of that messiness that how you kind of went through that temporality and intercalated the different data sources to get kind of a, a trajectory of what happened to these people over time. I mean, that, that just, that takes months and months of effort. How a small company could have done this that quickly. I just, I don't see how. 
Yeah, I'm sure you and I could talk for the next several hours about this particular messiness point. It's 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 a very uh, deep, important issue. Um, and and while we're thinking about it, you and I should write a paper about this, Marilyn. I think this would make a great paper. Um, At the very least, it would educate the other peer reviewers so that things like this don't happen again. Absolutely. Okay, number three of uh, our list of 10. And you can see uh, we're only on point three here. Uh, there's a lot to this. Uh, number three is that billing codes are uh, often used for diagnoses and billing codes are used for billing and they don't always accurately represent the particular diagnosis of the patient. They sometimes represent the convenient um, diagnosis for billing purposes. Uh, so that can add some noise um, to the data. Number four, Marilyn mentioned this a few minutes ago, the need for standards and terminologies to make sure we're all talking about the same, the same data and describing it uh, in the same way. Uh, number five is the need for common data models for integrating data from different sources, making sure we know that when we're talking about hypertension from the electronic health record that we're talking about hypertension from a claims database, for example. And, and so if we wanna study those two things together, we need a, a data model to map them to so that we can bring that data together, integrate it and do a joint analysis. Uh, number six is the need for biomedical ontologies. Um, as I said in point one, EHR data is extremely complex. There's a lot of different kinds of data in an electronic health record. There can be thousands of different fields in an electronic health record. And if you really wanna make sense of that data, you need to understand their relationships and that's where ontologies come in. How are all these pieces of information related to each other? What are their context? Uh, so ontologies can be incredibly helpful for not only the integration of the data, but the analysis of the data, the interpretation of the data. Number seven is the need for a data warehouse. Uh, we don't always pull data directly out of the EHR. Often we want to aggregate data from, the, from multiple different sources and put it into a database where it's integrated uh, using the standards and terminologies, using a data model, using biomedical ontologies, and put that into a data warehouse so that we can easily query it, store it, manage it, access it, et cetera. Um, uh, number, not, number eight is data integration. Uh, so not only do we need to integrate different types of clinical data together, um, but we often want to bring other types of non-clinical data, genomics data, environmental data, geographic data, socioeconomic data, uh, and integrate that data with the EHR data so that we can uh, do a more informed analysis. Number nine, data security, privacy, and governance. These are huge issues with electronic health record data, and, and I think it really calls into question this company Surgisphere um, that you know aggregating that much data from 670 hospitals uh, has huge data privacy and security issues that have to be addressed uh, and the governance of all that data. I mean, it takes a lot of time to figure out how all that's gonna work and to make sure that everybody trusts a company like Surgisphere to, uh, to work with their data. Yeah. I think you mentioned this earlier, but I think it's specifically in the context of this point, which is the authorship of the paper. You know, it's hard to imagine having data from that many hospitals without having some representative or at least some consortia that they've all signed off on that the, in the PubMed author list, it would have all the consortia members having participated in some of these consortia 
you earn authorship by doing kind of data extractions and data cleaning at each institution and the, then the data sharing. And then presumably there's some sort of analysis that would be happening across the different centers in order to do QC and make sure the results validate. And so the fact that they didn't have authors from all of the institutions kind of calls into question the, the authorship and, and where the data came from. Because most institutions have data privacy and governance kind of procedures in place that you can't use their data without acknowledging them or having co-authors from their institution. And so that to me was a, a huge red flag. Absolutely. And number 10, fairness and bias. Um, all EHR data has biases, um, uh, depending on the patient population and how patients enter a health system, et cetera, et cetera. And this can have a big impact on the analytic results. And so you have to understand the biases of the data to properly interpret uh, the results. Okay. So we, we could go on and on. I think Marilyn and I could probably come up with an, easily another 10 bullet points here to go through. So this is a selected set of challenges uh, that a company like Surgisphere would have to deal with to aggregate this much data. So um, anyway, I think that's why there were so many red flags raised about this company and so much scrutiny of the results uh, and, and, the, and the data. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is the philosophy of lab management. So when you're starting out your lab, and actually I would say even periodic times throughout the life of your lab, thinking through what structure and management style you want to use is really important. Are you interested in a hierarchical management style or a flat management style? Here, hierarchical would mean that you have kind of middle management or you have postdocs managing students and then maybe postdocs managing staff and then you only manage a few people in the lab and you have kind of a, a hierarchy or a tiered system of management. Or is it flat where everyone in the lab is kind of on the same level, all managed by the PI of the lab? Similarly, um, how much interaction do you have with you, your staff? Are you a micromanager? who interacts with each staff member every day and each student and postdoc? Or are you more hands-off and you let people work independently and kind of do their own thing and come to you periodically for advice and guidance? There's a paper in Science that we'll go over um, just a few points from that talk about this and give some general tips. It's called Managing Knowledge Workers, Rules for Absolute Beginners. It's from 2003 by Jim Austin. And one of the points that he makes, and, and I quote, your laboratory is not a factory. The people in your lab are smart, creative, self-motivated, technical professionals. If you want them to do their best work and your lab to work at peak efficiency, you need to manage people effectively and appropriately. Here are a few pointers. And he goes on to list seven pointers that I'll read through. Number one, measure outcomes, not inputs. Products are more important than hours worked. Number two, don't measure outcomes too overzealously. Every project and person is different. Number three, keep your commitments. Do what you say you will do. Number four, treat people decently. Number five, remain approachable and listen. Number six, establish reasonable policies. 
communicate them, and stick to them. And number seven, keep some slack in the daily schedule. So I thought this was a great set of points. And even though this paper is several years old, I think all of these still apply. And in fact, may apply even more right now as we've all been transitioning in the informatics world to a work from home environment, or at least partially a work from home environment. Thinking through the the hierarchical or flat uh, management style, and then as well, I guess the the micromanager versus hands-off, I think it is important to just recognize, and I think it's pretty easy to say, none of these are inherently bad choices, at least not in my opinion. Now, personally, I keep my lab flat. I do not have a hierarchical management structure. Everyone in my lab is managed the same by me. Everyone is treated the same, whether they are a graduate student, an undergrad, a postdoc, a data scientist, an administrative assistant. I feel like the lab works successfully because we are all on the same playing field, and so it's very flat. As far as micromanager or hands-off, again, neither one is bad, but it depends on kind of what suits you as a leader and what suits the members of your group. So I am hands-off. I don't necessarily need to know every detail of what every person's doing every day. I have a lot of my own things to worry about and think about. And I feel like if I knew every detail of what everybody was doing, my mind would just not be able to process the things that I need to do. So I think really that the key is fit, both for yourself as a leader and also for the people in the group. When I have rotation students come through, I talk to them a lot about what you're looking for in a mentor. Are you looking for someone who's going to check in with you every day and ask, what experiments did you design design today? What analyses are you running? And then look at the results with you the next day. If so, I'm not a good mentor for you because I want to teach people to be independent and come up with the analyses and the next experiments to do on their own and then talk to me, you know, once a week or every other week. And of course, if they get stuck along the way, I'm happy to meet more frequently, but I don't want to manage every aspect of what they do. Otherwise, when they leave and go off on their own, they don't know how to be independent and do it on their own. So for me personally, uh, I'm pretty hands off. I also think it's important to just be authentic to your style and do what comes naturally to you, not what you think you should do because somebody else does it. So one of our colleagues, actually one of my um, academic siblings, uh, does the check-ins every morning with his lab. And it's like a really quick run through, like, what are you doing today? What are you doing today? What are you doing today? He loves it. That would give me a heart attack. I don't want to know what everybody's doing every day. And so it works for him and it works for the people in his group and not for me. Um, And I think the last point that I would make, being willing to adapt your style as needed for either people that you have in the lab or even just periods of time with those people. You know, there have been points over the 20 years I've been doing this that I've had students who went through really hard times. And for one, I needed to micromanage that student for a couple of months because they were kind of derailing and going off track. And I needed to check in to get them motivated and back on track. I had another student experience a a very tragic death in the family, and I needed to really lay off for a couple of months. And we didn't really meet regularly at all, other than if that student wanted to check in and chat, that it just wasn't a time to look for output from that particular student. I think right now, what we're going through 
in this pandemic and working from home, I have found myself adapting a bit for certain projects. I feel like I'm having to manage a little more closely and micromanage the project a little bit because they're really tight timelines. And on other things, I feel like I'm even more laid off, laid back than usual because people are in this weird transition and trying to balance the work from home thing. So I think just as a leader of a group or as you're planning to lead your group, my advice would be to, to think through this, think through each of these points and what feels right to you and, and try it and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work well, pivot. You know, there's nothing that says that once you start one style, you have to stick with it forever. I think that adaptability is, is important. So I don't know, Jason, do you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, thanks, Marilyn, for uh, going through all of that. I think this is incredibly important and definitely something for um, trainees to think about as, as they start to build uh, their own lab and how, how they want to develop their own management style. I think it's really important to think through these different approaches and the, and the pluses and minuses to, to each. And I think you're right. I think there's no right way to do this, but you definitely need to find something that, that, that works for you and your students and your employees. Um, for me personally, like you, Marilyn, I've always had a, a very flat organizational structure and, you know, my approach is to, t- to tr- treat everybody, whether they're an undergraduate or graduate student, a postdoc, uh, a staff member, a research associate, um, and, you know, treat, treat everybody as, as an equal scientist. We're, we're all in it together. And I think the, um, the people with the least experience, if you treat them with respect and treat them as a scientist, they will, uh, the good ones will certainly rise to the occasion and, and I think will be more productive and do better science because it gives them, it empowers them, right? You're, you're, you're giving them, helping them build their confidence and uh, trusting that they're going to do a good job. And I think, I think people will respond to that really, really nicely. Um, the hierarchical structure, you know, certainly has some advantages. I think, you know, the, the basic idea is there is that you would put a postdoc in charge of sort of the day-to-day contact with a graduate student and a graduate student in day-to-day contact with an undergraduate. And there's sort of this reporting relationship in a more formal way. And, uh, and that's a model that's used throughout the United States and throughout the world, it's pretty common way to do things. I personally don't like it, but, um, but I think it is effective for a lot of scientists. And I think one of the benefits is that it, it gives those doing the managing experience being a manager. So if a postdoc is managing a team of, of students that gives that postdoc important managerial experience, um, and gives the students somebody that they can have daily contact with because the PI usually doesn't have time to, to meet with every student every day. So I think there are some benefits to that. But uh, in my experience in my own lab, I think the flat structure works really well. I think there's some sort of natural self-organizing hierarchies that develop, but, I, but those, aren't, those don't come from me, right? Those, those come from the relationships that are built uh, in the lab and and students and postdocs taking it upon themselves to mentor and help uh, others on a daily basis. So, uh, so that's my philosophy um, about the flat versus hierarchical. Uh, in terms of the micromanager versus the hands-off, I'm very, very, very much hands-off. And um, 
and in general, you know, my approach to running a lab is to, to is low drama and low stress. So um, I'm, I don't crack the whip. I don't put a lot of pressure on people. Um, and the reason I don't do that um, is that I think a low stress research environment promotes creativity. And that's the most important thing for my research program is creativity. I love new ideas. I love people coming up with interesting, fun, creative ways to do things. And, and creativity is stifled in a high stress, high drama uh, environment. And yeah, people might work harder, but I don't think the end product is going to be as good as with the hands-off approach. So that's, that's my take on that. Uh, and I've used the hands-off approach my entire career and it's worked pretty well. And yeah, occasionally you have a student or, or a staff member or a postdoc who doesn't pull their weight and doesn't work very hard. But I think the trade-off is that the other people rise to the occasion and you get much more interesting, impactful science um, at the end of the day. And what I would say about the micromanager approach is I, I, I don't think this is a good approach in general. I think some, some degree of micromanagement is necessary for certain people who need that structure or like you said, Marilyn, for projects that really have a, a tight deadline and have to be micromanaged to get done. Um, so I think there are times where micromanaging makes sense. But in general, people don't like to be micromanaged. Nobody likes having somebody looking over their shoulder every day, checking on what they're doing, giving them grief if they're not doing it appropriately. And it's part of the learning experience. You know, students and postdocs have to learn how to manage their own projects and how to get things done and how to solve problems. And if you're there telling them how to do it and giving them grief every day, um, it's, it's, um, I think it's going to impact that learning experience and it's going to just create stress for, for them, which then gets in the way of creativity. So that's my take on hierarchical versus flat and micromanager versus hands-off. All right. Thanks, Jason. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Jason, any closing remarks? Yeah, I have a, I have a couple thoughts that uh, were on my mind today, so I'll share them with you. Um, first is I was I had seen a paper today in the journal eLife, which is one of the open access journals that's become pretty popular in the last couple of years. Um, and I liked the paper so much, I thought, you know, I, I haven't looked at this journal in a little while. So I went to browse the table of contents and see what else eLife was publishing. And on their main webpage, and I don't, I don't mean to pick on eLife because I think it's a great journal, um, but on their main webpage, um, they list the topic areas that they covered. And biomedical informatics, bioinformatics was not listed. Data science wasn't listed. Um, and so I tweeted to the, to the journal today and I said, hey, you know, why, why is biomedical informatics not listed in your subject areas? Um, and it's fine if they're just absolutely not interested in any kind of informatics or data science papers. I think that's fine. Um, and I, I honestly don't know if the journal has that reputation or not. I don't think I've ever sent anything to eLife. Um, but this got me thinking about this issue in more, uh, more generally that over the years, um, you know, when, for example, when you register with a journal, 
if you submit a paper for the first time to a journal and you register and you fill out your information and you list, you know, you can always pick the subject areas that you're interested in. It's almost always the case, unless you're submitting to a biomedical informatics journal, that biomedical informatics is not listed as one of the subject areas that a journal covers. And I just think that's so odd, especially in this era of big data, data science, informatics is everywhere. Why are journals not listing these uh, this as one of their subject areas? So anyway, just a, a, a bit of a pet peeve. I'll throw it out there. Hopefully uh, some journal editors are listening and... Um, it would it would be nice to see informatics more uh, more widely represented as a particular subject area for a journal. And then the second thing I've been thinking about, of course, is COVID nineteen. But just thinking about the extreme complexity of this disease, it just impresses upon me every day as as I read the literature and hear my colleagues talk about uh, what they're doing. Um, research-wise with COVID-19, just how enormously complex and variable this disease is. And, and I'm, as some of you know, I'm a complex systems guy. I, I approach science from a complex systems point of view. I assume when I study a common disease that it's going to be extremely complex. And that's a real motivator for my research is trying to develop the methods to embrace rather than ignore the complexity of human health. And I worry that in the rush to uh, study COVID and make discoveries related to COVID-19 and, and, and the coronavirus, that we are falling into this reductionist trap again, where we're looking for those silver bullets. We're looking for those miracle drugs, uh, those miracle treatments, uh, you know, those patterns that are ubiquitous in all of us. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think there are going to be different treatments for different people and different risk factors and different um, different factors that contribute to the severity of this disease. And uh, I would like to see, you know, now that I, I kind of feel like we we're, we're through the first flurry of activities related to understanding COVID-19. And I think we're getting close to a time where, where we need to take a step back and say, okay, this is a this is a complex disease, and we need to take an approach that embraces that complexity. So anyway, that's what's been on my mind today. Marilyn, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I have a couple of things. Um, the first, I guess, segue is nice with you talking about COVID. I've really been thinking a bit more about work from home, and I've been trying to read some articles um, in The Economist and The New York Times, and uh, I actually just ordered a couple of books on Amazon about kind of different management styles and working from home type things. You know, I think at least for, for my research group, it's gone really well for most people, but I think we're not nearly at the end of it. It's not, you know, when we first started, we thought we'd be home for three or four months and it's starting to look like we're probably going to be home for a lot longer. And we may even kind of continue for quite a while having some kind of split time where maybe we're in the office a few days, but I can't imagine a time in the foreseeable future that we're going to be in the lab five days a week again. I just, I'm not sure if that, if that will happen again or when that would happen again. But in the context of that, thinking through how to encourage work-life balance or work-life harmony for the people in my group, it is so easy to work way too much throughout the day when you're always at work, you know, you could eat dinner and get back on the computer because, because it's there. And especially while we're not doing a lot of social interactions, I think it's easy to do that. 
And in addition, it's really hard to take a vacation. I mean, you mentioned you're going on a, a staycation next week, and I think that's great. I'm doing one actually the week after that. So the week after the 4th of July, um, I'm going to do a staycation. I guess I don't know when we're going to air this, so maybe it'll be out of context for, or, for the timing, but um, I, I need a break. But it feels really weird to take a break when I have nowhere to go. But I'm going to take a vacation partially because I need it and partially to encourage the people in my group that they should do it too. It's not healthy to work for 50 weeks in a row, but it's unclear when we're going to get to go on big vacations again. And so I'm thinking about that. And the other piece is how to get my team to interact well and continue their creativity. As you mentioned in the training segment, creativity is so important. And I feel like a lot of that comes when we are relaxed, when we're having fun, and a lot of times when we're together. You know, going out for lunch in my lab was a way that we'd start talking, we'd talk about a project, we'd go on a tangent, we'd go out for a drink after work, having happy hour, um, go for a coffee break. Creative things happen. That's really hard to do on Zoom. Yeah, Marilyn, I'm I'm so glad you said that. And um, I agree with you. I think we will be working from home for a long time. And maybe even when there's a vaccine, um, maybe half the time, something like that, really only come, come on to the work premises for important meetings or important days. And um, a lot of a lot of what we do uh, can be done from home. And I do agree with you uh, about the importance of vacations and breaks and um, and we have to set a good example. I'm a terrible example because I don't take a lot of vacations, but, um, I am going to do it next week and make the most of it. And, um, and I definitely, even though I don't take vacations very often, I definitely encourage my, my staff and students to do so and to make sure they're taking care of their mental health, which is so important. I encourage you to tweet and post on Facebook a lot next week, all the vacation time you're having, the video games and the naps. Make sure everybody knows that you're human too. Okay. Um, the last point I was going to make, and this goes back to the very beginning when we were talking about Black Lives Matter. You made a point about the faculty member that you were trying to recruit to Penn and that we needed to revamp that process so that we weren't comparing people from historical black colleges with people who come from Ivy League colleges who don't have the same opportunities, did not have the same connections and network to get things into those high impact journals. And it kind of, it resonated. And I kept thinking about it throughout the recording today. We have to even figure out how to go multiple levels lower than faculty. So we need to get kids into undergrad who maybe don't have the same test scores and the same grades and the same extracurriculars as kids in kind of uh, high income neighborhoods that have a lot of opportunity that are kind of their black peers don't have. Um, same thing with graduate school. I think if you take, you know, if you base things on test scores and high impact journals and grades alone, we're going to continue to have this racial disparity that is just not okay. And so somehow we need these admissions departments to at every level, at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level, certainly when we uh, recruit postdocs, to 
to think through this process and revamp how we do this recruitment so that we get more black candidates through the system and into our communities. We need that. We will be more creative and better at all of the science that we do once that happens. So I think that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.